And I felt that really, if I was to summarize the impression I got while I was there, the impression was politics, that's man's answers to man's problems. What about my answers to the problem, which is the gospel? And I just felt completely convicted, really, that I wanted to dedicate my life to something eternal. And that this was the most important thing that I could be involved in between now and, and when my life ends. Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. Well, hello and welcome to Testimony Podcast. We're very pleased to have Ian Jameson with us today. How are you doing, Ian? Very, very well, thank you, yes. We're going to start with the question I always ask, and I've prompted you with it. What was your home life like growing up, and what influence, if any, did Christianity play? Well, I grew up, first of all, in Aberdeen, in the north of Scotland, and then a brief couple of years in England, and then most of the time in the city of Inverness. And I had, I suppose, uh, looking back, what I would consider to be pretty close to idyllic sort of childhood, to be honest with you. Very happy home, loving parents, very good relationship with my older sisters. I'm the, the youngest, I'm the baby, spoiled, rotten and bossed around. And, uh, and Christianity was absolutely at the heart of everything that we did as a family whether it was praying together as a family, whether it was attending church very regularly. And I have to say that for me, Sunday was my favorite day of the week because that's where all our friends were. Everything associated with Christianity to me was positive in my upbringing. I just loved it. And I saw it lived out in mom and dad and also in Heather and Fiona, my sisters, um, because they're quite a bit older than me. So I was able to see them grasp the reality of the gospel and see how it changed them too. So I feel like I had every advantage really growing up, not just materially, but also spiritually, that everything was there uh, for me to take advantage of. And that's a, a wonderful privilege. I noticed you mentioned that you had a stint in England. That's probably where the idyllic childhood came from, was it? <laughs> no, that was just a blip. That was a bump in the road. <laughs> I'll edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did your Christian upbringing change to your personal relationship with the Lord? Well, for me, that was very, very early. I'm grateful that I can still remember it clearly, because I think for many people like myself who grew up in that context, they can't remember when it happened and how it happened. But I, I can, partly because it's a bit unusual. So I would have been five, maybe coming up for six. And we came back from the gospel meeting at the church that we attended. And, you know, the cross was just very clear to me, just as a wee boy, in simple terms. Uh, my mum was actually washing my head in the bath with the jug of hot water. And I said that I wanted to place my trust in Christ. And she sort of very simply helped me to understand the prayer I needed to pray to ask for God's forgiveness. But for some reason, I, uh, I got nervous and uh, to pray out loud in front of my mum. So I held my nose and I went right underneath the bath water until I was completely submerged under the water and then asked the Lord to save me. 
uh, under the water. So I believe and was instantly baptised there in our family bathroom. I did get baptised later. So that's almost like a Jonah-style conversion. Exactly. Well, I was preaching on Jonah to, uh, in a children's meeting not so long ago, and I said that, you know, Jonah and I had something in common. We were both saved underwater. <laughs> when were you baptised? Well, I was, I suppose, growing up, I, I was always keen. And then we moved up to Inverness, and I remember being at my sister's baptisms and really just coming to the realisation that if I was born again, which I knew I was, then there was no reason for me not to be baptised. I think many of us as children, and maybe as adults too, can develop false ideas of different levels of Christianity. You know, you've got the entry level of being saved and then you go on to be really serious and that's when you get baptised. An important thing for me was primary school in Inverness. When we moved up to Inverness, went to a primary school there that was quite a difficult primary school and I was the only Christian that I know of there. Um, I spoke differently to the children in the school. I came from a different background to the children in the school and I just stuck out like a sore thumb really and I was really quite badly bullied for being a Christian in school because I'm a bit of a, well in Scotland we call it a blether. I could talk for Scotland if it was an Olympic sport. I, I can never keep quiet about things so I would always be talking about the Lord Jesus or, or whatever at school. And this obviously annoyed people, you know, and I remember, but I remember being, you know, like pushed into corners and, and people would sort of try and get me to swear or take the Lord's name in vain. And then there was the whole, you know, I would give thanks before my, my packed lunch. And that obviously drew attention. And that was a significant moment for me in leading towards baptism, because I, I suppose I was faced with the choice either to, keep quiet about my faith in Christ or to be open about it. And if I was going to be open about it in that way, then what was to stop me being baptised? And so I was baptised when I was 13 in, uh, in Inverness. And again, that was unusual because our church in Inverness had been a, a church plant, essentially. It was people who had come from the assembly in Inverness to start a work in a new suburb that had grown up of new housing. And so the church had almost no money. So they had bought a field and they put a porta cabin up in that field and built a small house next to it. So there was no running water or anything apart from in this house. So we had to do all the baptisms at the Baptist church in the town until my dad built a hexagonal baptismal tank that you could clip together. And um, we'd get a hose pipe from the kitchen tap in the house and run it through the field, up through the top window of the porta cabin, suck on it until the siphon started and then fill up the tank that way. So it was absolute chaos. But there was 10 of us baptised on, on that day, um, wow. that particular uh, Sunday, and it was wonderful. And it was very a very powerful experience for me. And I know I was only 13, but I believe, if I believe that a six-year-old boy can understand that Jesus Christ died for him, then I believe a 13-year-old can experience the Lord. I remember very clearly going up into a, another room, a sort of back room in the church to dry off after my baptism. And it was just me in there. But I've, I don't think I've ever really since then felt the closeness of the Lord in an almost palpable way than I did in that room. Felt he was just right there with me. And that was very powerful for me uh, and a real confirmation to me. Yeah, I bet. So moving forward slightly, we're going to get to 08. And in 08, you decide you're going to go to another place in Scotland, to St Andrews, and you're going to do a particular course. Maybe you can pick the story up from there. 
Yeah, so I suppose to provide a bit of background, um, I had one sort of career in mind towards the end of school, um, which, believe it or not, was actually politics. Shocking as that may seem, but I, uh, the Scottish Parliament had not long been created. It came into being while I was growing up, and I wanted to be involved in, in that Parliament in some way. I wanted to be the next Scottish Conservative MSP. That was my, that was my goal. But that all changed. I went to a, uh, a trip. I went on a trip with Scripture Union to Peru. And while I was there, I was there for two weeks. It was just a short trip. But the Lord really had a dealing with me. And I felt that really, if I was to summarize the impression I got while I was there, the impression was politics. That's man's answers to man's problems. What about my answers to the problem, which is the gospel? And I just felt completely convicted, really, that I wanted to dedicate my life to something eternal. And that this was the most important thing that I could be involved in between now and, and when my life ends. And uh, I remember that there was a chorus that I grew up with. I grew up in a, in a Baptist church in Inverness. And there was a chorus that we used to sing that said, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. Uh, that was a line in the song. And that's always been important to me. And I've always gone back to that and thought, well, what is the main task that God wants us to be involved in between now and when his son returns or when our life ends? And I want to, my life to be invested in that. So that was important. So in, a, in the context of growing up in a Baptist church, I then came home from Peru, <laughs> sat down with my mum and dad and said, I think the Lord's calling me into the ministry. And I think I would like to become you know, a Baptist minister. So I had a meeting in our living room with our, with our pastor at the time and talked to him about the convictions I felt the Lord was growing in me. There had already been a development of interest in the scriptures very keenly through school because I became the leader of the scripture union in our school and was so interested in preparing the Bible lessons for that. That really sort of set my heart on fire for personal study of the Bible. And so then I applied to St Andrews University in Fife in Scotland to study theology. I'd already set my heart on St Andrews. Whatever I was going to study, it was going to be there. I had gone on holidays to St Andrews when I was younger, and if you've never been there, it's absolutely beautiful. So I just thought, well, whatever it is God's got for me, he's going to have to send me here first. <laughs> but when you were at St Andrews and you're starting this theology degree, at some point you have a, a change of conviction that moves away from the Baptist church and moves towards what we would know as the, the assemblies or the gospel halls or some people would say the brethren. How did that come about? Because I think it's a fair thing to say that over the last few years there seem to have been a lot of young people leave the assemblies and go to more evangelical churches. What was it that appealed or what was it that you brought about your conviction? Yeah, so there was a number of things. I... It's a difficult question to answer because whenever we make decisions, we're not doing it in a vacuum. You know, we're not doing it from a, an objective point. Uh, we bring a lot of baggage to every decision that we make. And my grandparents were in the assemblies. So my, my dad's parents and my mum's parents. And I was aware of, of the assemblies. Um, and I liked them. I had a, I suppose you would say like a soft spot for them uh, growing up. And I can't really explain why that is. I suppose I like the atmosphere in them because we would go to them when we were visiting grandma and granddad in Edinburgh 
And also my dad still preached quite a bit in a number of assemblies. And so I would go with that when he was preaching and always enjoyed it and particularly enjoyed the breaking of bread, which was different to what I was used to. Although we broke bread regularly, it wasn't in the same way. And also when we had first gone to that church in Inverness, it had in fact been meeting along assembly lines and then had joined the Baptist Union and had developed over time into what today is a, is a Baptist church. So I was aware of the assemblies. Then when I went to St. Andrews, as I say, I, I would have considered myself to be a Baptist, went to the Baptist church as a, as a student, very popular student church in St. Andrews. And I have no complaints really about that church. The preaching was very good and very sound at that time particularly. But a number of things began to coalesce in my mind. There was a concern growing in me, I suppose, about pride, if I'm very honest with you, in my own heart. Because if you get a whole load of 17, 18-year-old guys who all would like to be ministers or pastors together in a room, there's a lot of ambition swirling around in there about what your future ministry is going to be like, about how the Lord's going to use you, and so on and so forth. And I began to see, I suppose, developments of things in my own heart that I perhaps didn't like. And I thought, is this really right? Um, and I began to think about some of the men that I really admired growing up and Bible teachers I admired. And I noticed that a lot of them, most of them, in fact, had had secular careers or had secular careers as well as their preaching or had had secular careers and come from that to preaching. And I thought, well, you know, I've come from a Christian home straight to a theological faculty. I mean, bearing in mind it was a liberal theological faculty, so it wasn't an easy ride. As, as a Bible believer, um, but nonetheless, straight to that. And then I would have gone straight to the Scottish Baptist College uh, or another Baptist college somewhere, and then straight into being a, an assistant pastor or a youth pastor or something. And I was quite convicted by a number of passages in the scriptures. And what I started to do was I, I started to do a detailed study of the New Testament, Acts and the Epistles, having a look at how the church met, how the church gathered, in the New Testament. And I was really excited by that vision of, of simplicity and purity in the New Testament. And at the same time, you know, dissatisfied with my experience of, of church now. Um, and I suppose that's something we all feel, actually. And it's probably a healthy thing to feel as we look into the New Testament. But I suppose I became convinced that the clergy-laity distinction was something that I couldn't support in my reading of the New Testament that there wasn't this distinction in the Bible uh, between a special class of people that are set aside for ministry and then the rest who receive that ministry, if you like. And so I began to wonder really whether becoming an ordained minister was suitable, was appropriate, um, according to the New Testament. And then the whole idea of, of a denomination, which is distinct from other Christians, um, has its own name, has its own headquarters, has its own superintendents and committees, etc. Um, I, I struggle to find that in the New Testament as well. And at the same time, I've got a real interest in church history. So I started to read some of the main books on the assembly uh, movement, you know, from sort of 1830 up until today. And I was absolutely fascinated by those books, absolutely fascinated by them, by the courage of some of those early men who had to leave their churches. You know, there were Anglican clergymen, there was Baptist clergymen, there were all sorts of people in different contexts who had to say goodbye to all of that because of their convictions to meet in a simple way around, around the Lord, essentially, gathering to him. 
uh, and with no other labels or, 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 or denominational names. And so this was all going around in my head at the time. And so I was particularly influenced by a book um, called The Father of Faith Mission about a man called Anthony Norris Groves, who was a um, assembly missionary, very early assembly missionary, right at the start of things, really, to Baghdad, of all places. He was one of the first Western missionaries to go there. He was a dentist who gave up everything, really, to go out there. From a human point of view, it was a disaster because he, he lost his wife. He lost a number of his children out there through cholera. Um, but he really blazed a trail uh, for the gospel in that land. And his vision of and his understanding of church life and of New Testament simplicity totally just won me over. I just thought, this is fantastic. And so I left the Baptist Church in St. Andrews with no acrimony at all because I had no complaints. I just explained that, you know, my convictions had changed and I felt I had to make that move. And I went over to an assembly in Dundee at that point. I think it's important to point out that when I asked that question, that's not to be disrespectful to any other denomination. That's not the intention at all. I have interviewed people from different denominations on here. It's not an assembly podcast per se, but a lot of the people who I interview are from an assembly background. Uh, but I just thought it was interesting that you don't very often meet people who have left a particular denomination and come into the assemblies. So I thought it was be an interesting part of your story to hear. So you leave the Baptist seminary, the, the theological course behind, and you then go on to study law. So what was you thinking behind that? Well, I actually, um, although I, I went over to an assembly in Dundee, I did finish my course of study. So I finished uh, my MA in Biblical Studies at St Andrews. I'm glad I did because it, it gave me the opportunity to get to grips with the original languages. I wasn't and still I'm not very good or proficient at those, but it was good just to get, a, you know, an introduction to them um, and, uh, and to analysing the biblical text. There were, there were a number of um, evangelicals teaching at that time in St Andrews, which uh, was great. They were a bit of a light in the darkness, and I'm very grateful for them and their encouragement when I was there. Um, so I'm glad I finished that course of study. Um, and then when I came to the end of my time, I suppose... I had had that change of conviction, so now I was no longer going to be a, a minister in that sense, an ordained minister. So the question was, well, what am I going to do? Because I had been convicted, especially from First Thessalonians, um, I laboured night and day among you, uh, that I might preach the gospel, that really the ideal thing for me was to be able to work. Yes, preaching was still going to be my absolute priority, and serving the Lord was, was the driver. But what I did was I, I applied to Edinburgh to study law. And after a one year's break, um, volunteering with the assembly in Dundee that I was with, I then took up my place at Edinburgh to study Scottish law, which was a two year conversion course um, that I did there. And then you moved on from there and you worked for the Sheriff's Court. Now, perhaps for a layman like myself, you could explain what that's about. Yeah, well, in Scotland, we have sheriff courts um, and a sheriff is a judge, essentially. So in England, you would call them judges and we call them sheriffs. And that's basically just like your local court. And uh, so I worked there. I was finishing my legal training. I had a bit of difficulty with my exams uh, in law. I struggled with some of them uh, to get through them. And I had one remaining module uh, that I had to pass to get my law degree. And I had really struggled. And I, my approach was, well, if I have to walk across that stage and wrench it out of that 
principal's hand. I'm getting that law degree by hook or by crook. So this one module is not going to stand in my way. And I had failed it uh, twice. And now it was the only thing standing in my way. So I said to the university, I'm not walking away from here without a law degree. So can I come back and sit it again? And they said, absolutely, you can. But there's a five month, you know, there's a five month break between now and when we'll be offering that exam again. So I took a job um, at Kirkcaldy, um, which is the town, if you're standing at the shore in Edinburgh and you look directly across, that's the town you'll be seeing over in Fife. And I took a job at the Sheriff Court there. Um, I was the man who says, all rise uh, in the court and we'd get papers for the sheriffs and, and go and call witnesses and that sort of thing. Absolutely fascinating window into human life, every aspect of human life. It was amazing. And goodness knows how many illustrations for messages I've had from five months of working there. When you see sheriff, I just think of like westerns and you're riding it <laughs> you're, you're like a on a horse. And yeah. Yeah. The John Wayne of Fife. Good, good in hand. There's a title, the John Wayne of Fife. <laughs> <laughs> so then you move on to do, a, let me get this right, a DPLP, a Diploma in Professional Legal Practice in Aberdeen. You're doing a tour of the Universities of Scotland. That's right. Although I always manage to avoid the West Coast. So um, no, <laughs> offense, no offense to the West Coast people who listen in. Yeah, I... I, uh, I suppose my, my life in Scotland has been a bit of a tour of all the cities of the east coast of Scotland, really. I eventually went back to Aberdeen where I started, and I did the diploma up there. Um, so that's what you have to do in Scotland. You do your law degree, and then you have to follow that up with a diploma if you want to practice. And I did, at that point, think I wanted to practice law. That was the idea. Uh, the idea for me was to try and get the job uh, in a small practice, um, a, a small, perhaps maybe even a rural law practice, because... What I wanted was for preaching to be the priority and for my legal work to, um, to essentially to fund my preaching, you know, to, to be there. Um, yes, I was interested in it and, uh, and, you know, I wasn't doing it just for the sake of it. I, I did want to do law. I did enjoy it, but um, preaching was always the priority. So I went up to Aberdeen to do the diploma and I was in Fernie Lee Gospel Hall in Aberdeen. So you've just said you're hoping to kind of get a small rural legal place. So how on earth did you end up working in Buckingham Palace? Because that seems the far end of the spectrum. <laughs> well, I always say that what happened was I was sitting on a park bench and a man in a dark suit came and he, he pushed a suitcase towards me. No, but that, that's not what happened at all. I, um, I just, I finished my course at Aberdeen and I was then looking for traineeships. That's the normal course of events. You, uh, you do your diploma, then you apply for a legal traineeship, which will last two years until you're fully qualified. Um, so that's what I was looking for. But I was finding it difficult to find something that wasn't going to just funnel me into one of the big law firms because I knew I didn't want that. And I knew that that was the very opposite of the sort of thing I had planned and that my friends who'd gone before me and done those things had no time at all no time for you know, family life, no time for assembly life. So I knew I wanted to try and avoid that. And I cast my net more widely and I thought, well, I, I'm going to look for legal jobs. Um, so I subscribed to Indeed, the jobs website. This, is, this isn't an advert for them. I'm not getting commission. But um, I, uh, I used that website and this notification came up one night about half past 11 in my wee flat in Aberdeen. There's this job going at the, in the private secretary's office at Buckingham Palace. 
And I just sat there and I thought, I'll kick myself if I don't apply for this. And once I've applied for it, I can forget about it, but at least I can always say I once applied for a job at Buckingham Palace. So I did, applied for it. It wasn't a complete shot in the dark. I, I did feel I had the right qualifications for it, but I didn't expect to hear from them. And then it was, now when was it? It was actually when I was in a village called Pitlochry um, that I, um, I found out that I'd, that I'd got the job. I, I had to go down for two sets of interviews. I'll just tell you a brief story about the first time, um, because this was remarkable. I, I flew down from Inverness, which is where my parents live, and I was staying there at that time. I'd moved out of Aberdeen by then. I flew down to London. I had a night in a hotel in Russell Square, central London, and then my um, interview was the next afternoon. And I was so nervous. I mean, my, my interview was at two o'clock in the afternoon. I was so nervous that by like half eight in the morning, I'm up, dressed, suited, booted, starched, polished, and just sort of sitting there waiting for two o'clock to come, getting more and more anxious. <laughs> and uh, I went down to the lobby of the hotel and I was sitting there just panicking, to be honest with you, about what I was going to say, because my interview was held in the palace itself. So I was, you know, doubly nervous. And it was incredible because I was the only one in this hotel. It was empty. And then about, I think it was about 10 American tourists came in to the reception and they were checking in their luggage. And one of them came over to a side, a side table and was getting some juice or something. And I went over and got myself a glass and we got chatting. And uh, they asked me why I was in London. And I said, you know, where I was from and that I'd come down for this interview at Buckingham Palace. And you can imagine Americans, you know, they get very excited about things to do with the royal family, etc. So they're excited about that. But then something incredible happened. Because all this lady knew about me was that I was called Ian, I was from Scotland and I had an interview at Buckingham Palace. And the next thing she said to me was, I hope you don't think this is strange, but me and all my friends here, we're all uh, born again Christians. And wow. we, would, we would really like to spend a few minutes just committing you to the Lord in prayer today, if you wouldn't mind. And I said, no, I wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> uh, it was incredible. And the Lord just knew exactly what I needed um, at that moment in time. And then the Scottish or, or the British part of your brain kicks in and says, just because 10 random American believers prayed for you, don't think you're going to get this job. You know, <laughs> don't get your hopes up. But yes, uh, and then it was actually, I had that interview and then it was the wait to hear whether I'd be called back again. And I was sailing with my dad um, up the Sound of Mull. My parents go sailing on the, on the West Coast every summer. And we were up there in a tiny rural marina in Loch Allen on the West Coast. And they had Wi-Fi at that marina. And so I accessed my emails and saw that I had been asked to go back. So which royal interviewed you? Was it the Queen or was it Charles? <laughs> no, it was, well, it was funny, actually, because the interview was in the summer. And in the summer, uh, the central summer months, the palace is open to the public, uh, you know, certain areas of it anyway. And so in order to get from the entrance to the room that I was being interviewed in, I had to go down through the basement. So you're going down through the basements of Buckingham Palace, which is basically a, a carbon copy of what's above, but sort of these vaulted ceilings and, and brick walls. And it's quite amazing. Uh, but it was a pretty intimidating walk from, from uh, the entrance through these um, uh, basement corridors up to the room where I was being interviewed. So a friend of mine said, look, you need to interview this guy. He worked in Buckingham Palace. And I had in my mind that you were serving to the Queen, you were you know, with royalty every day. I have to ask, which members of royalty did you see and spend any time with? Well, it's funny, the perceptions that people have, because I was one of 650 people working in there every day. 
It's a huge machine, Buckingham Palace. And I was very entry level uh, in the private secretary's office or the pen pushers department, as some people would call them. Um, and I was part of a, a sub-department of that called the Secretariat involved in research and government liaison work uh, to begin with, at least. And um, so there would be no call, no reason for somebody in my position to actually be interacting with, with the royal family at all. Uh, we were very much backroom boys, uh, working away in the background. We were the men in grey suits, making sure everything happened. But from time to time, partly because of where our office was located, we would see the royals a lot. Because our office, uh, where I sat, faced into the um, the central uh, quadrangle of, of the palace. So you saw everybody that, that came and went. There were some remarkable moments where you'd be watching, for instance, you'd be watching on, on the TV, Theresa May in the motorcade on her way to the palace to come and hand over, you know, her prime ministership. And you'd see the car on the TV and then you'd look out the window and you'd see the car come through the arch and you'd see it all being played out in front of you. Just incredible. But no, I mean, I only interacted personally with just a handful of royals um, and only for moments, you know. Um, I was very much in the background. So the rumours that you had a big impact on Harry and Meghan leaving the UK aren't true? <laughs> no, not true at all. Not okay. true at all. Yeah. I did meet them. I did meet them. They came uh, to our department to thank us for the work we'd done behind the scenes for their wedding. And uh, none of us had the courage to admit that we had done almost no work behind the scenes for their wedding because that's not what our department did. But they didn't know that. And we were happy to be thanked. <laughs> so you were there for kind of three years. And then you decide that you're going to reduce the number of days that you worked, how did that the conviction come about? Well, I suppose that at 17, at the age of 17, I had left home with the full intention of becoming a minister. So with the full intention and desire to dedicate my whole life uh, to the service of God. And I had never changed that view. I never changed that conviction, but I, but the Lord had changed the, the methods, um, changed the the way that, that I wanted to go about this. Uh, but that desire had never changed. So, so the service of the Lord was always my first priority. We had a wonderful opportunity to um, witness while we were at the palace. You know, there was a lot of freedom given. When I arrived, there was a, a small group meeting to pray already uh, when I got there, but it had sort of dwindled down to two or three and um, it had become quite, I suppose, lackluster maybe. And so because I was enthusiastic about this prayer group, they were quite happy for me to run with it and to see if we could advertise it more. Because I thought out of 650 employees, there have got to be more than two or three who would like to pray. So we advertised it more widely. We, we moved the venue from a, a room that you would have had to have an orienteering diploma to find to a, a room that was sort of opposite the entrance to the, the staff dining room. And it was lovely just to see it gently grow to sort of eight, nine, 10, 11, and, and larger numbers sometimes. And we were able to, you know, have, have this prayer time every Tuesday lunchtime. So I would give a very short word from the Bible, just one or two verses and, and a thought or two. Um, and then we would have half an hour of prayer together. And it was lovely, you know, believers from all sorts of different backgrounds, united uh, by a love for Christ and a concern for their colleagues um, to come to know him as well. I think it's incredible to think that such verses as, you know, pray for those in authority and whatever. And in Buckingham Palace, you can pray for the Queen and for those who are making the decisions. That 
that must be quite a thing. Well, it was a wonderful privilege, and um, and we were given a lot of freedom. You know, I mean, as a modern workplace, I think it's a very, um, it was a very easy place to be a Christian on 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 the one hand. Um, I mean, I had a Bible on my desk all the time. I had Bible verse calendars up on my wall. Um, I had a choice cleanings calendar next to my computer, and every night the cleaner would turn over uh, the the page, and I always hoped she was reading it. She didn't have to do that, so she was obviously doing it by choice. But um, you know, I was never it was never a problem for me to be a, a believer in that context. I suppose on the whole, the type of people that are choosing to work there are people with a a relatively traditional view of life, mm. and so as a result of that, the I suppose the convictions that we as believers have are less shocking to them um, than it might be in a modern business environment or in a, in a health service or education environment. Um, so, so then when I asked them if we could do tracting um, outside the staff dining room, I was given full permission for that. Um, you know, that because there are 650 staff, there are lots of staff societies, book groups and sports clubs and, um, different societies um, and they would hand out leaflets outside the staff dining room, come to our next event, come to our next um, cinema screening or whatever. So I thought, well, why can't we do that? So at Christmas and Easter, we were allowed to have a stall outside the staff dining room and we would hand out um, Christmas tracts, Easter tracts, um, and uh, invite people to come to the, the prayer meeting um, and, uh, and little treats as well, Christmas treats and Easter treats and things like that. Um, and people were so receptive. But, you know, I couldn't stop smiling for about a fortnight. The last time that happened, sorry, the first time that happened, I just thought, I can't believe this. I cannot believe this is happening. I'm standing here for two hours tracting in Buckingham Palace. I just can't believe this is happening. And I'm so grateful that it was allowed. I mean, I remember one of the cooks coming up from the kitchen and saying, oh, uh, can I have um, a few copies of that leaflet? Because they're not able to come up, you know, they're down in the, in the kitchens cooking, you know. And um, people actually requesting it, so it was just exhilarating. That's incredible, isn't it? And I suppose a lot of that stems from the fact the Queen is so open and so vocal about her own Christian faith. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that if the boss, for want of a better expression, if the Queen sets the precedent of that's how you know that's her faith, then it's great that that's seen throughout the place of work. Yeah, well, it, it's a situation which I think is quite unique. And, and that's why, even though I was away preaching a lot and sometimes flying away for the weekends or trying to fit in a lot of preaching around my work, I didn't want to leave the palace totally because this felt like such a unique opportunity to make the gospel known in that context. So eventually I, I spoke to the elders at Collier Row Gospel Hall, where I was in fellowship, which is in far east London over in Romford. Um, I was an Essex boy for two and a half years. Didn't get the accent, but well, there we are. I spoke to the elders there and I shared my concerns with them. I said, you know, I really, it's tearing at me to have to say no to invitations to open God's word with people and to preach the gospel. But I don't feel that I can leave the palace totally yet uh, because the prayer group was still just solidifying as a group and I felt we had unique opportunities. So they suggested, after prayer, they suggested, what about part-time work? And I sort of thought, well, nice idea, but it's not going to fly because there aren't any part-time positions in the secretariat. I just knew that that wasn't going to happen. Well, <laughs> that's not counting God into the equation. So two weeks later, our boss called us all into the room and said, we're going to have a bit of a reshuffle around 
my friend and colleague Rob had just gone to go and work for Prince Harry. And as a result, it had created a bit of an imbalance in the department. So we needed to shuffle things around. And she said, as part of that, I want to create a three day a week position in historical records. Now, I couldn't believe this because firstly, I knew that I had my name on it, three days a week. Absolutely, I'm having that. And then secondly, historical records was my favourite part of the job. So previously, historical records had probably accounted for about a quarter of my average working week, but it was my favourite quarter. It was the quarter I liked the most. And without going into it in too much detail, that is reviewing historical files, mostly from the Foreign Office and from the Home Office, that have royal information in them, and using the Freedom of Information Act and the royal exemptions, and making recommendations to what material needs to be removed. So taking out all the juicy bits before the public can get their hands on them. And it was absolutely amazing. I mean, to be being paid to read handwritten notes by Anthony Eden or Winston Churchill or cabinet minutes from Thatcher or something, just absolutely fantastic. And they even allowed me to choose my days, uh, which was wonderful. So I chose Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so that I could have every weekend, essentially as a four-day weekend, to study and prepare and travel for preaching. So it was a great provision. Yeah, it just, it just shows when the Lord decides to open the door, it's what is seemingly impossible is not impossible for the Lord, is it? That's right. So you do that for a while, working in, on a three-day week. Whereabouts were you travelling and, and how did that work come out? You know, preaching, teaching, evangelising. How did that work start up? Well, it was really just a continuation of what I was involved in before. And it was really just having the time to say yes to more of what I was already involved in. And also I had begun to be invited to go out with another chap out to Romania, to a Bible school out there in the centre of Romania, a place called Golgotha Bible School, just outside Sibiu, which is one of the main cities in Romania, right in the centre of the country. And I had sort of used up all my leave, really, doing that and I had absolutely loved it and so this enabled me to do a bit more of that sort of thing because what I could do was in order to get what was it I suppose eight days of leave all I had to do was take three days out because that took me all the way from the Friday to uh, you know the Monday of the week after uh, so it was great to be for that to be able to get time off and to travel uh, and also around around the UK in different places to teach God's word and it was just an absolutely wonderful provision but it didn't actually last long because it only lasted really for a few months before COVID-19 reared its ugly head. And during COVID there would be another change in your life perhaps you'd explain how that came about. Yes that's right uh, it's a wonderful change so uh, Rebecca and I um, Rebecca's now my wife we had met 10 years previously um, on a, a mission trip over to Belfast and then we had met a number of years later when I was preaching at the assembly that she was going to. And so then we, we reconnected later when I was in London and then things developed very quickly from there. I went up to Inverness to my parents uh, for the weekend and Rebecca was coming up too to see them and to, to be with us for the weekend. She'd already met them before, but this was the second time she was going up. COVID had begun to come on the scene and London was going to be going into lockdown. And so we were told just go home, and, and we'll see what happens from there. So I went home with a bag packed for maybe a week or so, and Rebecca came um, with a bag just for the weekend, and four months later she was still there. Because on the Saturday, it dawned on me that I was planning to propose in the Easter. That's what my plan had been. 
but actually I thought, you know, if I, if I don't propose this weekend, we could be stuck apart for a long time. I didn't have a ring, but my parents, unbeknownst to me, had kept my grandmother's engagement ring for me. And wow. so I was able to then, I proposed on the Saturday and Rebecca and I got engaged. National lockdown with Boris Johnson appearing on the, the screen and addressing the nation happened on the Monday. Yeah, big changes. Yeah, and so you were then married in July. That's right. Of uh, 2020, so that was quite quick. But then I suppose you you had spent together a, a fair bit of time together in your parents' house. So you, you knew some of the you knew some of the uh, intricacies about each other and some of the some of the issues. That's right. Well, she she survived four months of my parents, and she still wanted to marry me. So so that's a solid foundation. Yeah, she wanted to marry you. She didn't say she wanted to live with them, though. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. But uh, no, it was a lockdown wedding, of course. So we were, at that time in Scotland, we were allowed 20 people, which was actually ideal for us because that's all of my immediate family plus all of Rebecca's immediate family. Sadly, her sister couldn't make it. She had glandular fever, but one of our sisters, Deborah. But we were able to have all our family there for the most part, and that was a great blessing. If it had been any more than 20, you would have had to start making decisions about who else can come. Whereas just with 20, the cousins you don't like, you can't invite anyway. And so Harry and Meghan, they weren't prepared to come back for that? or were they, did they No, I mean, I, I, I sent an invitation, but I've never heard anything back yet. <laughs> you then left the palace. You now have gone full-time, full-time serving the Lord, I should say. What is your role as far as full-time work involves? When Rebecca and I got engaged, that's when I resigned from the palace and I had a three-month period of notice to work from home, uh, which involved almost no work, to be honest with you, because my job was related to actual physical paper files, which couldn't be removed from the palace for security reasons. So I had almost no work to do for, for those months, if I'm honest. Uh, and that's when I, um, it was Rebecca's suggestion, first of all, that I could maybe do short devotional videos on YouTube. And, and that's when I started to do them, really to give me something to, to focus on during those weeks of, of the lockdown when it initially started. So it was a natural decision for us, really. I mean, I remember we weren't totally sure in our minds whether when we got married, Rebecca would move down to London or whether I would move up to, to Fife, where she was a, and still is a primary school teacher. But it was funny, the day we got engaged, as soon as I had asked her, and she had said yes, thankfully, I just didn't have to wonder anymore. I just knew that I was to come up to Scotland. It just seemed to crystallise in my mind. I didn't have any questions about it. So moved up to Scotland and therefore knew I had to resign from the palace. And that three-day-a-week stint had been a useful stepping stone for me. But I knew that it wasn't the final answer to the problem of feeling torn. Um, and so it felt like exactly the right time to leave secular employment and to step out into the Lord's work on a full-time basis. That looks like, at the moment, I suppose it looks like a mixture of, of gospel preaching and Bible teaching and in lots of different places all over the UK and all over Scotland. I still have a link with Romania, obviously can't go out there just now, but maybe probably once a fortnight or something, doing some Bible teaching there on Zoom, which is a great blessing. And then I do the, the video site as well uh, on my YouTube channel and things like that, and a little bit of writing for magazines here, there and everywhere. So you don't know what the average week is going to entail. Try to manage my diary as best as I can, make a few mistakes along the way. But no, it's, it's lovely just to have that time to dedicate to the Lord and not to have to constantly be thinking, can I get enough leave? Can I get enough holiday to say yes to these invitations, you know? 
And I suppose it's so difficult. We're still coming out of the whole pandemic. And so your your role and your daily and weekly activities are, are still yet to be shaped fully as to what the future will hold. Definitely. Although I think, you know, a lot of ordinary assembly activities are back up and running. Um, and so that's a great blessing. But no, you're, you're definitely right. I mean, we're still living very much in a, a COVID world, aren't we? So I'm on the board of a, a small sort of Bible society called the Opal Trust. I was asked by them to write a tract just at the beginning of lockdown called uh, COVID-19, uh, the virus that changed the world. We decided to call it after COVID-19, actually, just to give it longevity uh, once, once it's sort of more behind us. But that's been a great blessing to be involved in that. And it's been translated now into a number of different languages and is being used. And so that's been a blessing. So COVID brings opportunities as well as limitations as well. Great. Perhaps you can share the name of your YouTube channel, Ian. Yeah, so it's just my name. So it's just Ian Jameson. Um, so that's I-A-I-N and then J-A-M-I-E-S-O-N. And there are sort of three elements to it, really. There's regular devotional videos, which are short devotional videos just designed to encourage God's people from the Word of God. And then there are gospel videos, again, short videos aimed at uh, people who don't know the Saviour, and then Bible teaching videos, which are, are sort of longer um, engagements with the Word of God, more like sermons, I suppose. That's the three elements to it. Really. I've just started a little series for December, uh, looking at each of the 12 days of Christmas. So we've done partridge in a pear tree, and I've recorded two turtle doves. And uh, now tomorrow I'll be working on the challenge of finding three French hens in the scriptures. That's interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> we'll put a link to the YouTube channel on the podcast notes. So anybody who's interested could just look at the notes and find the link there. Uh, and hopefully you'll watch along and they'll, they'll see you as well as hear you. Sure. Well, Ian, we always finish with the same question. Which Bible verse or verses have had an impact upon your life? There's two I'd like to highlight, if that's okay. One of them is actually found in my hometown. In Inverness, there's a number of bridges that cross over the River Ness. And there's one of them where, <clears throat> as you make your way up to the bridge, on the left-hand side, there's an old Victorian factory building. And on the side of the building, there's a, a plaque. And most of the time, it's hidden by trees. But in the winter, you can see through uh, when the leaves are bare, and you can see the plaque. And it has this verse on it from John chapter 9 and verse 4. And the Lord says... I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. That verse has gone round and round in my head a lot, especially with regard to stepping out into the Lord's work. That, you know, I believe very strongly that the Lord's coming is imminent. Um, it's always been imminent, of course, uh, since he made those promises of his return. But I do believe that there's a night coming. There's a night of God's judgment coming. And there's a day when our work won't be possible anymore. The work of the gospel won't be possible anymore. And um, that we've got to work. We've got to do that work for him while we've got time. And again, links in with that, the verse of that chorus that I mentioned earlier. I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation. So that verse has been an influence on me. And then another one is the beginning of Hebrews 12. Very familiar to people. Hebrews 12, verse 1. And just to give you the context for that, I remember when I was in Aberdeen. I was going through a difficult time spiritually for a few months. I felt I'd let the Lord down in a number of ways and um, I wasn't feeling close to the Lord. And I remember being in a prayer meeting at the Gospel Hall 
And I just was not right before the Lord. And I was just looking at the clock, waiting for this prayer meeting to be over. Was I really listening to the prayers of the other brethren? No, not really. Uh, Was I in the right place to pray myself? Well, I just didn't feel in that place at all. And unusually, a brother got up at the end of the prayer meeting and gave a reading. And that would normally have happened at the beginning. But he got up at the end and he read um, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And it was like God's finger just touching me and touching those painful places in my heart and saying, well, this is something that needs to be dealt with because you're not where you should be with me. And it was a a significant moment for me in taking steps forward on the, the narrow road, you know. And funnily enough, when I went to Romania, The second time I went to Romania, I was invited to a city called Yash, which is on the Moldovan, the border with the Republic of Moldova. It was amazing to be there, but Romanians are often quite last minute in their organization. And they said, you're going to be preaching at this youth conference. And I said, right, that's fine. What's youth conference about? You know, what's the theme? And they didn't know, you know, so I just had to sort of ask the Lord what I should preach on at this youth conference. And I was the first speaker. And I got there to this building and there were 700 young people at this youth conference. And I just couldn't believe it. Looking at this sea of young Romanian believers, I was told just before it that the the title for the conference was in fact going to be the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And I thought, now that's a good title for a conference. What should I, what should I speak on for that? So I chose uh, Hebrews 12 and verse one, and I spoke on that verse. And then after I'd finished, the brother who was chairing the meeting got up and said, well, that's actually our theme verse for the conference. That's the verse we've chosen to be the theme of the conference. So it was a real confirmation uh, from the Lord that it had been the right verse to use. So those two verses I would highlight. Thank you. I'm going to throw in another question just before we finish, Ian. If you were to ask the listeners for, for some prayer points, or should they ask for some prayer points, what is it that they could pray for as you move forward with your full-time service for the Lord? I would ask you to pray for open doors uh, for service, but also for wisdom and discernment in what to say yes to. My personality, I would just say yes to everything and then find myself with no time for other things. So for wisdom and discernment about avenues of service to go down for him. And then I suppose I would ask for prayer for some of the tracks that I'm involved in writing I've got two that are on the the sort of the back burner at the moment and I'm working on also for the local trust that I'm involved in and for the literature work that they're doing so those would be two sort of main prayer points thank you for sharing your testimony Ian and thank you everyone for listening along thank you very much Thank you for listening to Testimony Podcast, hosted by me, Dan Dalton. If you have a suggestion as to who could be interviewed, you can email us at testimonypodcast@outlook.com, or you can find us on Facebook at Testimony Podcast, on Instagram at testimony underscore podcast, and then the number one. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the previous ones, then please consider commenting, liking or sharing them on social media.
This really helps to get them noticed. Also, please consider leaving a review. Thank you.